We'll pray and then we'll jump into Exodus 23, 10 through 19. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your kindness and your grace that you give us in Christ Jesus. How your love never fails through trials and tribulations. There's nothing that can separate us from your love, O oh God. And we thank you for the patterns and rhythms that you have set uh, from the beginning, from creation, Lord, that are for our good, God. And I pray that we would seek to live and abide by them. And that God, uh, ultimately, it is preparing us for the eternal rest, God, that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you. Be with us now. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, anything... Um, Anything that stood out to you from this past week, from Exodus 23, 10 through 19, that you want to reflect on more, talk about, discuss, um, uh, critique, insult, any of those things? I like the idleness and the, uh, I don't have a danger of being lazy because I don't think I am. But well, but maybe that's not the point. The lazy that I'm thinking is working but the lazy that this is meaning is in God's work maybe no I think there can be both and that's why I kind of mentioned on Sunday is that you can you know there's an idleness of spiritual and physical idleness in some sense you know so we quoted that Thessalonians passage where Paul is writing to the to the Thessalonians about there's people who are among you who are not busy at work, but they're busy bodies, right? And they have idle hands. And he's, he's telling them that we came to you and we worked and we weren't a burden to you. And we, you know, uh, if anyone do, does not work or is anyone idle, they shall not eat. And so uh, there's a sense of that people can fall on one of the two spectrums when we were talking about work and rest, where they can be uh, just idle, lazy, and uh, expect to everyone to provide for them. And that's what, I think that's what Paul's meaning in that Thessalonians, that, that when a person is idle, when a person is lazy, the burden is on somebody else to provide for all their needs and not on them. And he says, when I came to you, we weren't, we weren't a burden to you, but we worked hard so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. So I write these little old sayings down that my family says whenever I'm around them. And one of them is, idle time is the devil's playground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got, I got a bunch of them. And some of them are pretty funny. Yeah. I think and this one fits Wyatt. It's, a, it's like a goose in the desert looking for <laughs> something to drink. That's how he rolls. That um, text he just, you know, talking about, Paul says, if he, if he don't work, he shall not eat. I think of. That from a spiritual perspective, yeah. and how we're called to to do the work of reading this text, and to f use the phrase "feed ourselves," which is a, probably a phrase we've heard a lot. Is that people leave churches because they say, "I'm not getting fed," and my response usually is, "That's this is not really their job. You're supposed to, you know, as a mature believer, we're called to." to feed ourselves and there's yeah. there's an idleness that can come in, in that spiritual sense as well yeah. yeah there is a spiritual sense to this that um, you know the opposite of spiritual idleness is spiritual discipline right and this is what we're supposed to be doing what Paul writes to Timothy in the pastoral epistles train yourselves 
for godliness, right? Is that there is a discipline that is involved and and he talks about, you know, I beat my body and I train it, you know, and that there's there's good physical exercises, a good thing, physical training, but how much more so godliness and spiritual training in some sense. And so the opposite of spiritual idleness is spiritual discipline where you're in, you know, what Donald Whitney in his famous book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, where he talks about all these number of disciplines that we can find in God's Word, reading God's Word, praying, uh, you know, uh, attending church and being in a part of a church and um, being part of corporate and personal worship, uh, you know, fasting. I think he has journaling in there. So there's a number of different disciplines that are to be instruments that God uses to grow us and to nurture us and strengthen our faith. And so there is a sense of spiritual idleness that where we just kind of say, there's no discipline involved. I'm, I'm not going to discipline myself in these areas. And that's where we get, um, that's where we get into trouble, right? I, I used this example yesterday in our men's, um, our men's Bible study. But um, when we talk about like spiritual discipline and not being idle, is that when people like go off the hand, you know, go off the rails spiritually speaking, and you know, into just kind of exuberant, lavish sin, and they ask, you know, they ask, "How did I get here? How, how did I get here?" Well, it wasn't because of just one day. Like I'm just, you know, is that it's it's kind of a progressive like little thing, little thing, little thing, little thing here. And I explained it to him. It's kind of like the alignment in your car, right? Is that you don't wake up and get in your car and then one day your alignment's all off and you're, you know, trying to hold the wheel straight and things like that. No, alignment, getting out of alignment happens a little bit each day as you drive. And so then you got to take it into the shop and you got to get realigned. Same thing is with the spiritual life and spiritual discipline. When we give up spiritual discipline, it's little bit by little bit by little bit because the world is constantly trying to conform us to it. And we do when we don't have any spiritual discipline. And so then we say, how did I get here? Well, it's because of neglecting spiritual discipline, neglecting time in God's Word, neglecting prayer, neglecting accountability, neglecting personal and corporate worship and things like that. Idleness, laziness in some sense. And these rhythms are the antidote to, uh, it's the alignment is what these rhythms are. It's constant alignment. Yeah. yeah. I find sometimes that, well, just for instance, whenever it, going to Sunday school, I can't, if I have not read my lesson or know what we're talking about, I'm not, I know before I even go in there that I'm not going to get anything out of it. And the same thing with church. If I haven't prayed about God's word being opening up to me, then what good is it even to go in there and mm-hmm. sit? For instance, Sunday was a bad Sunday for me. Not bad, but I had a lot on my mind. Yeah. You know, it was like sometimes you just don't get it. But I don't know that we're supposed to get it every single time. So we're supposed to be faithful, which right. we did. Right. And you know. go. I had a similar experience Sunday. I was telling, I told Wes this, I told the elders this. I was just kind of distracted. I had, I left Wednesday to go back to Rachel. We did a bunch of work this weekend, loading the truck. I drove back up Saturday night. 
I had to get here early Sunday morning to do a couple things. And and then the service just kind of happened. And afterwards, I was like, man, I just, my mind wasn't there. It just felt like you missed yeah. that. And, well, and then I thought, Jim said, I said, well, I guess there's another, there'll be another one next Sunday. He said, there'll be another one next Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Well, Noah and I were talking about this at the church Sunday. We were talking about idleness and, and some of this. And uh, I told him, I said, a lot of times, you know how y'all do the thing for the kids where there's, you're asking them questions, you know, the kid thing. I said, that's how you stay engaged. I said, that's like mama takes these notes. And I said, I go over them, but it may be, two or three weeks and I'll go, oh, and I'll go digging and and I said, but it makes me stay focused. I said, if I just sit there and Wes is talking to me, I'm a visual learner. Yeah. And if I don't write it down, to me it makes it stick better. Yeah. And, and like you're saying, even though your mind is a thousand different places, the Lord's going to bring that back to your mind because you were obedient in doing what he wants you to do, yeah. which is be in fellowship with other believers yeah. and be learning God's word. So just like he's interested in our rest, he's interested in everything about yeah. us. You know, That's exactly right. If he's interested in our rest, he's interested in everything. That's exactly right. Yeah, and part of... Part of the, the fight against spiritual idleness, in some sense, is that um, it, it requires us to do things that we don't always feel like doing, right? Like, don't always feel like getting up and reading, getting up and praying, getting up and going to worship and things like that. Don't always feel, but part of the fight against spiritual idleness is doing things when we don't feel like doing them. Um, I, and I think that's probably the case with anything in this life, is that, you know, if you're going to get anything done, you're going to have to do it when you don't feel like doing it. I feel like, too, you know, you can call it a habit or whatever you want to call it. But if you get off of that track, Sorry. then that's when you gradually can, like the alignment, gradually can lose what your focus is supposed to be on. That's right. Yeah. So we're talking about these two extremes that we talked about on Sunday where... God has created this pattern and rhythm of work and rest, work and rest for his people. That's a good thing. And that one of the, these two extreme dangers is that on one extreme, there's an idleness. And there's this, and we can even look at this in a physical, being lazy, or in a spiritual, of spiritual laziness, where we just kind of, we're doing a lot of work, but not really any work in training ourselves for godliness, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as 2 Peter 3 tells us. And so, on the other end... Uh, the spectrum is what we talked about is that we overwork or workaholics in some sense. And there's a danger to that too in not resting. Um, because, you know, basically it's kind of a mantra of the world. The more I work, the more I'll achieve, the more I'll succeed, the more I'll earn, the more I'll do, get all these things. And if our ultimate goal in life is to be successful and achieve and get money and fame and all those things, then it makes sense to be a workaholic. But that's not the mantra, that's not the motto, that's not the mission, that's not the goal of the Christian life, is it? The goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ, image of God's Son. And so that requires us to work and to rest. 
meaning that we trust the Lord. And for Israel, that's a big, it's a big deal agri- in an agricultural um, uh, society to rest when they could have another day of plowing and another day of cultivating the land, another day of gathering and things like that. God says, just no, trust me that I will provide even when you take a day off and rest, right? So any thoughts on that and, and the kind of twin dangers of idleness and being kind of a workaholic? Well, there again, that's, that's the whole world, world's outlook is more, 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 better, 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 yeah. especially in America. You know, we, we, just, we just can't help ourselves, it seems like. Yeah. You know, we've had some interns go like to Italy to some of our other uh, businesses and go work there, and they're like, what are you doing eating at your desk? What are you doing? They're, they're just, they can't even fathom yeah. the way we just are so focused and, and work, 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 work. I think yeah. the American way or the, you know, how people come to this country and, you know, got to better themselves, they've taken it to the wrong extreme. Well, most definitely. The are like this, you know, in the afternoons they take a siesta. And nobody can accuse them of not working hard. I mean, from, from the, the same yeah, from before the sun goes up, they are, they are planting and they're picking bananas and they're doing all these things. They're, you know, killing chickens, whatever. They work hard and then they just stop at like two o'clock. They're just going to stop and then take a little siesta, an hour, two hours, and they're back at it. So there's something to be said about that rhythm, right? I don't want to get on the government, but in our state, our government has made our society lazy. Mm-hmm. And that has caused a lot of dysfunction, you know, crime. Yeah. And, you know, because if you're, you're drawing money and you're not working, something's wrong with that. It's a good thing to work. You know, we, we, we've created an idea that work is a bad thing, but work is actually a good thing. And what we talked about, you know, mentioned in passing in Genesis 2.15. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. You know, <laughs> it, it's a good thing to work. We were, we were created, Adam and Eve were put into the garden to what? Work and keep the land, to cultivate it. It's a good thing to work. It's a good thing for our hands to find something to do in purpose and meaning. And to do it for the glory of the, of the Lord, right? Um, whatever your hands find to do, right? So there's a good thing about work. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's not a burden to be bored or, or a thing that we're supposed to basically find every way and means and avenue to get out of, right? Uh, it's actually a good thing. And again, the Lord creates and sets this pattern in creation. He works. And on the seventh day, He rests. And when we, you know, when... This other danger of, you know, workaholic is that we believe by doing all these things that we are actually in in control of our futures in some sense. That we work hard, it's going to assure us that we're going to get what we want and our desires and things like that. And that's why the Psalms 127 passage is so important. Unless the Lord builds the house, the one who labors, labors in vain, right? 
And so when we work, work, we actually, you know, and don't rest, we're saying, I'm in control of my future. I'm in control of my income. I'm in control of my 401k. I'm in control of my retirement, all these things. And ultimately, we have to say, all those things could vanish and that none of the, these are, am I really in control of, right? And so, can you talk a little bit about how how do we define rest? You know, because it's we're in a season, right? Where like my little kids still need me, and so I can't equate that to not serving, right? Which we would all agree with. But uh, I do feel like there is this difference between like just being entertained on a day, and then like what like actual rest looks like. Well, uh, I'll begin by saying this, is that early, uh, early Jewish rabbis, when they would comment on these rest and work laws, they had really strict standards of what rest was. So you could only take a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath. You could, you could not, um, you know, um, eat. there was just lots of things that you could not do. You could not cook or something like that. You couldn't do anything like that. You had to prepare your meals beforehand. There, you know, if you... If you were going to go over your steps, you, I mean, you basically had to stop where you were, were at. And so there's really strict standards of what rest looked like for them. It could not be over exhilarating, you know, um, yeah, but no sweat of any form, I guess you could say in our own terms. And so is that really rest, right? Is, that, is it really that strict that you can't take so many steps, that you can't do well, these kind of things? Right, right. Now you're like counting your steps, right? You're like, oh man, I'm at 140. I got, you know, I got five more. And uh, this actually, you know, this actually kind of comes in modern day. Well, you're, you'll see like Sabbatarians who, um, this is probably more years ago, where they gave you a list of things that you couldn't do on a Sunday. You know, you couldn't play Frisbee. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't mow the grass. You couldn't... Yeah, well, yeah, well, depends. And so, uh, yeah, wa- you couldn't wash clothes. You couldn't, you know, you know could, couldn't do any of those things. But is that really the definition of what rest is? Um, you know, we, we said here is that they are to have rest so that their labors can be refreshed, right? That they can be refreshed. And the Lord will say that too in Exodus thirty-one seventeen. Not that the Lord needs refreshment because he never grows weary. He's never tired of as Isaiah 40 tells us. He says that the rest is to bring refreshment to someone, that it's actually a difference in a rhythm. And that's what we need. We need refreshment of some form. We need to be rejuvenated. Our, our rhythms need to be changed up. And so I would say there's no really parameters for rest in the sense of like you can't do these things and you have to do these things on that day. You have to lay down all day. You have to take a nap for three hours. You have to, you know, it, it's what brings rest and a difference in rhythm for you that is not necessarily associated with your common schedule of work, 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 work. Where you do have to say, I'm not going to work today because I'm going to trust the Lord will provide for all of our needs even when I'm not trying to attain, obtain financial means or income. Yeah, I think that's the heart behind that. And that's probably a phrase you'll hear me say a lot because I'm so, I just, I'm, I'm wanting to understand what the heart behind these commands are. And, and it's um, that God's going to provide what we need. So when we, even when, and when we rest, say, 
you're just like you're gonna watch TV all afternoon. That's not really rest. What you're doing is you're um, you're you're really doing you're spending time distracting your mind so that you don't have to deal with something. Disconnected. Yeah, disassociate. Yeah, disassociate. And I, I don't think that's rest. So the heart behind that is. Uh, let the Lord provide what you need. So if, in my rest, I probably ought to spend time thinking about the things that make me anxious. And allowing the Lord to, to provide me that rest. So for me, rest might include just like being around some people. Because I tend to, to get energy from being around others. But yeah. To understand what, what you're trying to get in the in the activity that you're doing, what's what are you trying to obtain from this activity? Can I answer something to her question? Please. Um, thinking from being a mother and done that, um, like on sometimes we would make something special on Sunday, you know, just just to be a little bit out of the rhythm of the regular week because you can't take a day off if you're a mom. You still have to take care of them. You still have to cook. You still, you, you don't get a day off. You just don't. And you won't get a day off for a long time. <laughs> and then you, then you can go do it again. <laughs> well, I think that's too where I'm like, the command is still sometime, somehow for moms and dads and parents in that season. So, so, just you know, there is there's got to be something there that I you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. some little fun thing or something that's just different on Sunday that you just get out of the routine. Or... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's supposed to be a day that's differentiated from the other days of your life. Uh, that should bring you refreshment and rejuvenation, and that's what it was meant to do for the workers. The laborers uh, for Israel is that yeah. it'll bring them refreshment. When I was a child, um, you know, and things are more laid back when I was a child than they were today. But you know, we would go to church. Sure, we went to church just about the whole day Sunday. But Sundays was a time that we got to spend with our grandparents, mm -hmm. and we'd go have watermelon and make homemade ice cream, or go throw horseshoes, or it was a it was a special rejoicing. Yeah, it was something fun. I, I want to. I think the author of Hebrews brings up these these themes of work and rest really well because the Sabbath and the rest and the work from labors and and the rhythms that God has set uh, set in creation is actually to prepare us for a future of eternal rest in Christ Jesus. So this is Hebrews four. If you want to turn there. And uh, the author of Hebrews is drawing on these texts of rest and work and things like that. Because he ultimately sees that there's a rest that is still waiting for God's people. It's that like God's people still haven't experienced a rest, right? Is that Joshua and all his conquest and all his leadership there did ultimately not, was not able to bring God's people into a final state of rest, right? And this is what, uh, we'll just read. Um, all of chapter 4 it says this therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands meaning it hasn't been fulfilled yet they're still waiting on something 
Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a quote from Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So if Joshua had actually accomplished it, God wouldn't have had to say Psalm 95 that you still haven't entered it, right? So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the author of Hebrews is presenting to us a future eternal Sabbath rest that we're to strive to enter into. And that one of the ways that we'll fail to enter into it is by disobeying God, basically not submitting to his word not obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's putting before us that the eternal Sabbath rest has actually not been completed. So when we read these laws about Sabbaths and rest and work, it's ultimately pointing us towards a future eternal Sabbath rest that will be in Christ Jesus for all those who obey him. And this is why we quoted at the end of the sermon on, uh, from Colossians two sixteen and 17. Don't let anybody... Um, look down on you basically for not keeping these sabbaths and new moons and feasts and festivals for these are all a shadow of the things to come so they're pointing forward to something and the substance is in christ right and this is why jesus can say the that he is the what the lord of the the sabbath and then he can also say that who was created for the Sabbath and what was the Sabbath created for? Anybody know that verse? Man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath. And he is Lord of the Sabbath. So we're looking forward to something to come in the future. A future eternal Sabbath rest. I'm really struck by verse 10 there. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. Oh man. In the same way God rested from his works, we can rest at ours in trying to obtain our own salvation and rest in Jesus' yeah. work. Yeah, that, that's why we said on Sunday that these two themes of work and rest intersect in Christ, right? Is that no longer do you need to work and try to earn and garner God's favor and God's salvation and righteousness. Is that the work of Christ has accomplished all that for us 
He's done the work on our behalf. And then we can rest in that work. We don't need to try and add to it or fulfill it or uh, increase it. Is that we all we are called to do is rest. This is what Jesus calls his disciples. Come, you know, uh, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Come rest in me. Let's move to the second section that we talked about. uh, The feast and the festivals and... Uh, the commands for sacrifices and offerings. Any anything stick out to you about that section that you want to discuss? Well, I had a question. Do you do you know of a book that you were talking about the feasts and the celebrations and how uh, when Christ came they became? Is there some book that goes into more details about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. <clears throat> I asked him this like about a year ago, <laughs> and he sent me. A doctoral thesis. Oh, yeah, I, I was like, Don't send that. Oh, sorry. So I'm going to say there's no book. Yeah. yeah, the one that comes to my mind right now is an article that I think is a doctoral thesis. And I think it's the best um, out there, th- this, this thesis. But... Uh, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, I, I probably need to like bullet point it. And, uh, it's very dense, but there is a podcast by the Bible Project. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That kind of hits some of that. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll try not to, I'll try to find something more popular and not this doctoral thesis and maybe I'll bullet point it. It's really good. It's by a guy named, um. By a guy named oh, Seth Postel. Yes, I was okay. Seth Postel. And what he does is he takes all the feast and he's able to he's able to draw these conclusions with how they are fulfilled in Christ. And um, from the feast of unleavened bread, from the feast of the ingathering, the harvest, all these things. And he shows how textually the language is that the gospel writers are trying to present using the language of these feasts of how they're all fulfilled in Jesus. Actually, like that's that's what they're trying to do. And so, um, like that very much so gets at the Colossians. That very much so gets at the Colossians passage. Yeah. These are just a shadow. Exactly. For example, the the first fruits. Right? Is that you know, he shows in this paper, I think pretty, pretty convincingly, is that all this language of first fruits when we talk about creation, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, James chapter 1, um, you know, even uh, probably 2 Corinthians 5 where he says a new creation and stuff like that, is that that's all the feast of the first fruits language to discuss like these are the first things that come the best and the first and that when Christ is resurrected he is the first fruits of the resurrection meaning this is what's to come after it us being resurrected and so he just shows how Paul particularly and the gospel writers are drawing from the language of the feast to describe Jesus's life and ministry and what he's doing to bring new creation to the world to bring Salvation through the Passover, stuff like that. I have more time to study now than I did when I was working. So when we started into Exodus, it's just piqued my interest again about doing a Bible study on the Old Testament where it's leading to, you know, these things that are leading to Christ. I'll see if I can find something more uh, 
Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> more, more digestible. Okay. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was, yeah. No, I'm glad you called me out for it, Rachel. I'm, I needed to be. It's like, what am I thinking? I just, but what I, what I discovered in that is that through these festivals, God creates a rhythm of life mm-hmm. for not just the week and the Sabbath, but also the year. And then for every seven years, and then for every, what is it, seven times seven years or something like that? Or seven less than something around in there. And so when you're going through some of the, even the Old Testament, the placement of when something happens can align with where these festivals festivals are. So you can see how like they, like in Esther, the edict comes out two days before Passover. Yes. And so they have this, you're going to die. Mm. But then, oh wait, we're celebrating that God passed out, like caused that to pass over us and delivered us from that. So like this bad thing's going to happen. Don't worry, I'm going to deliver you. Wow. So, That's a great, great point, like, Rachel. These rhythms are comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it, it, to, to what Rachel's saying is that God is really concerned about their calendars, right? Like he's really concerned about their calendars. And, you know, where, where uh, I kind of said this in passing, is that their lives are to be revolved around the calendar that he's created for them. Not the other way around, is that we create the calendar and then we'll fit his calendar in when we can. And that's what happens to Israel. They begin to forget to do these feasts and these festivals and these sacrifices and the offerings. And they say, when we get, we'll get it in when we can get it in kind of thing. But no, God creates this calendar for his people where basically, ha- you know, it happens at the end of the week. It happens at the end of the month. It happens after every so many months, after every so many years, after the end of the year and things like that. And that all these, it's a great way to say it, Rachel, a comfort. And that these feasts and festivals are reminders for them, warnings at times for them. To, to remind them of what God's done for them, to remind them of who God is, His character and His nature, because they easily forget, right? That's what the psalmist really brings out in Psalm 105, is that, you know, God did this, but you forgot. God did this, but you forgot. God did this, but you forgot. And so when they, when they do these, these festivals and these feasts and these sacrifices, these are constant reminders for them of who God is and that they are to maintain covenant faithfulness with Him as He has done for them, right? And so God is concerned about the worship and about also just about their calendars and how they structure their lives around Him and worship of Him. And it's been flip-flopped and gets flip-flopped in Israel's where that the worship of God is actually not the priority, right? It's not what their calendars are built around. It's whenever they can fit it in at that point. And so... One thing that you brought up on Sunday that I thought was like, um, just, um, I'm I'm not butchering it here, but just neglecting to prioritize worship is actually a sign of hostility toward God. Um... You know, and not not just the corporate gathering, but personal worship. That's actually revealing something in me, you know, yeah. that is pushing against 
because um, if his if his commands are not burdensome, if they're not they're not meant to be burdensome for us, right? Then they'll be a comfort, like like Rachel said. Um, yeah. And then like Sabbath or that weekly, even just the weekly rhythm will be a, a time of me remembering, you know, recalling to mind what the Lord has done and looking ahead to that future rest. Whereas if I'm not prioritizing that, what is that revealing about where I'm actually standing with the Lord? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had to, this was one of the points I had to really tease out in my own mind when I said that because um, it can sound, it doesn't sound like, how do you get that, like, actually to not prioritize worship actually puts you in hostility towards God. And um, so I want to, I want to take y'all to a place that really got my mind thinking about this. It's in Zechariah 14. And so uh, I, I actually, I, I called some of the elders and talked about this, just like, am I on the right track with this? Like, I don't want to say anything that's too extreme, but it actually, I actually think is true. For one, there's no category of an Israelite who says, I'm going to follow Yahweh, but I'm not going to keep the feast. I'm not going to keep the festivals, and I'm not going to do the offerings and sacrifices. There's no category for a person like that. Um, it just doesn't exist. And to a further point is that actually neglecting to do these things does not put you in a neutral position with God. Yeah, you know, like I'm just not, we're, me and God are okay. I'm just not that kind of Israelite. You know what I mean? No, like to, to, to neglect the feast and festivals is actually not making you an Israelite at all. It's actually putting you in the camp of like a Canaanite or an Egyptian or something like that. So this is just the text that I was reflecting on uh, in Zechariah, when it talks about the coming day of the Lord and it gives these pictures of the nations coming to Him and uh, nations that have particularly been hostile to God. But look at verse 16. And I'm going to read uh, probably till verse 19 on this. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So a Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. So basically, the nations that survived the coming day of the Lord that were initially hostile to God are now being called to go to Jerusalem and to go worship God and to go keep the feast, right? As an act of worship to God. And then it says, verse 17, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Verse 18, and if the family of Egypt, he's just, he's singling out Egypt right now, because that's kind of been a, a um, uh, like a kind of poster, like poster foe of God and his people, right? Does not go up and present themselves as if like an offering. Then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So do you see how when a nation or a people or a person does not actually um, comply with God's commands to keep feasts and festivals and the worship of God, they're not in a neutral position with God. They're actually positioning them in hostility towards God, and there therefore is punishment for that. And so this just to me says there's no category for an Israelite, for a follower of the Lord, 
to say, yeah, I'm going to follow the Lord, but I'm not going to keep his feasts and festivals. That's the way in which you exhibit faith in the Lord. And I think the same thing is for the Christian, is that it's kind of a, an anomaly. It's a weird, there's no category for a person that says, yeah, I love Jesus, but I'm just not going to worship him. I'm not going to prioritize worship with God's people. I'm not. There's no category for that. And it's actually not putting yourself in a position of, of you know, uh, right standing with God. It's actually putting yourself into a, not even a neutral position, but in a hostile position towards God. Which is why the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 warns us to, to not neglect the gathering. Don't neglect the gathering, because by gathering with one another, you're preparing yourselves as the day draws near. The day, right? And, and in the next few verses there in Zechariah, you know, he's telling them to remember the, the feast, you know, and everything. And then the next is saying that Christ ultimately is going to come and make you holy, you know, because you've been following me. You've been doing what I told you to do. Now here comes Christ. That's exactly. That's exactly. Isn't the feast of booths fulfilled in, in Pentecost? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles is basically where they uh, live in tents for a time to remind themselves of the wilderness wanderings and the journeys. And interestingly, is uh, you know the tabernacles and the you know the the tents that they live in uh, basically comes to be you know a, the tabernacle that they you know that they house worship in right. They have the tabernacle where God's presence dwells in and among them, and then which ultimately becomes the temple, right, where God's presence dwells, and then Jesus, and then the church, <laughs> right, and then the new heavens and new earth. Spirit. So this, I, I just find this so fascinating that the the marker of worship is adherence to the feast of booths. Which ultimately is the indwelling of the Spirit in people who believe in Jesus. Right. So that even Egypt, even Egypt, the poster child for evil, has an opportunity <laughs> to go worship with the Spirit indwelling in them. Yeah. Yeah. This this tabernacle stuff is really interesting. John one fourteen is really really interesting. The language it uses, and he dwelt among us. So the word dwelt there is the Greek word for he pitched tent among us. It's pretty interesting that John uses pitched tent. I wish translations would use that, that language because it carries with it the tabernacle language. That in Christ is where all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, as Colossians says. This is where God dwells with his people in the person and work of Jesus. And so then, as Jesus as Jesus departs and ascends into heaven, he breathes his spirit on his people, and they now come, what 1 Corinthians tells us, the temple of the living God. And then, when God's people are gathered together in the end, in the new heavens and new earth, uh, is they are now in an Eden and temple-like place in the new creation where God dwells with his people. He's found the dwelling place of God. And so, yeah, the Feast of Tabernacles is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, which is, then brings us into the final dwelling place of God, the new heavens and new earth. But yeah, all of this is just a reminder that 
you know, that worship is important. The worship of God is important. And, and in that, you know, what the people bring and offer and sacrifice is important as well. They aren't come empty-handed, you know, uh, when they come. There's things that are acceptable and unacceptable. So what's acceptable is they're to offer the best of their first fruits, right? Not leftovers to God. Ha! Anyone? Good. Anybody catch that? Nope. So uh, the best of their first fruits. And then they're also not to, to uh, you know, unleavened bread that's been somehow mixed with blood because there's life in the blood and they're not to consume blood in any form. Uh, and then the... Uh, the, the favorite verse of all is do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk uh, appears three times in the law um, there's a lot of debate and speculation over what that means some have um, drawn the line to Canaanite practices of offerings that they made of boiling boiling animals and milk of its mother's milk and stuff like that as that's a pleasing sacrifice and offering to their gods of whatever it may be. Can you give another something on that, like an example that's better for my brain? Boiling a baby goat yes. in its mother's milk? Yes. A better example than that. Like, I don't know. I'm not getting it for some reason. Yeah, it's it could be a practice of another religion in Israel's day that this is this is one of their sacrifices. It's that not they literally do. the milk. No, I think it is probably literally the milk. So, yeah. Uh, using the mama's milk to, to kill the baby. baby. To kill its baby. Okay. Or to, to cook it for your nourishment and the life-giving yeah. thing yeah. of the mom. Because well, you probably already killed them. There's two, there's two options. So, it's either not condoned or not an acceptable sacrifice because it's, it's Israel trying to basically transport the practices and offerings of a foreign god into the religion of Israel, into their worship of God. And that's just not acceptable. Another example of this is that there's other religions in, among Israel's day that felt like child sacrifice of some form was acceptable to God. And what God says in Jeremiah is as you sacrificed your children. That didn't even cross my mind to ask for something like that. How could you? Like, like, and so that's not acceptable. That might be acceptable in worship to Baal or worship to Ash or whatever. It's not acceptable. You can't take the practices of another God and bring them over into the worship of me because I'm holy. I'm so distinct. And so worship should be distinct. Or it could be that there's an association, and this is this was an uh, interpretation by a Jewish guy. I think his name is Nahum Sarna. Um, but that there is an association with milk being a life-giving instrument. Like that in the milk, a, an animal is nourished. And an animal finds its nourishment and strength and support in its early years. And then to actually take something that brings life or is used to sustain life and actually... Um, basically imbue it with death. The death of something um, is inappropriate. And it also could be something about it being kind of inhumane to animals. We've already seen in these texts that God does have a concern for people and for animals and how they're treated and things like that. So it could be something inhumane like that too. So those are two options uh, of what it could possibly be, why they would 
why he would bring the, this command up, this prohibition up three times in, in the Pentateuch. So, Is it the pretty much the exact wording at each three times, or is one of them like um, roasted or broiled or something like that? Um, I think there. I think the Deuteronomy one is. Um, yeah, I think the Deuteronomy one does use different language. Because I, I think I remember reading something about how in different times in Israel's history, the uh, people, because people were saying, "Look, look, the Bible's inconsistent. It says bold here, and then over here it says roasted." And it could have been that at different times in their history, they had, uh, like in the Passover, that they were they were quickly going out, so they had they were supposed to roast. And then other times in history, they had more times that they could boil. It's just that was an interesting. Yeah, that that's true of the that's true of the sacrifices, but I don't I think the lang I, yeah I don't think it's the roasting. Uh, that is true that certain sacrifices at times were boiled, and then later it's commanded that they be roasted. And so, particularly in Deuteronomy, the language changes because it's a different generation of people. You know, it's the, the kids and grandsons, granddaughters of the wilderness generation at that time. So. I have a question. Uh, going back to the uh, pattern of worship, and you said something about regularly, wait, no, three mm. times, Carl. bars? I, I wrote down three times. Three bars. Regular, right, and rejoicing. Well, yeah, I thought I wrote that somewhere else. Oh, okay, here it is. What is it again? Regular, right, right, and rejoicing. Okay. So I wrote it in two different places. Was that your question? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, those three R's is kind of a way to sum up all these things is that Israel is called to regular routine worship. It's not to be spontaneous or happenstance or kind of if we have time for it. It's to be regular and prioritized and put on their calendars. And then it's to be done rightly. So that's what we just talked about is that that's why he gives such clear details about the types of sacrifice that he will, he will receive and be acceptable to him. And then rejoicing. So, you know, that's where we quoted Deuteronomy 16 is that it can seem like these these feasts and festivals and even the Sabbath commands can seem like these are really killjoys, they seem really strict, they seem really that they, they steal people's kind of excitement in some sense. But actually far, very far, that's so far from the truth. As Deuteronomy 16 makes it really clear is that when you do these feasts and festivals, these sacrifices and offerings, there should be a sense of rejoicing in the worshiper is that you're remembering what God has done for you. You're remembering that he's, He alone is worthy of this worship and praise. And it should cause you to rejoicing. And so uh, is God is not calling a, for a um, monastic way of worship where it's, it's joyless and it's cold and it's, um, and, yeah. Well, I don't see how you can get anything out of it if it's not for those reasons. Right. I mean, how would you even, or I know I wouldn't, yeah. if I had to do it because I have to do it. Yeah. 
worship should not be, it's basically going against worship should not be a chore. It's not an obligation. It's not a burden to bear. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I've said this in the past about giving, you know, um, you know, in tithes and offerings, is that, look, if you're white knuckled, you know, on the, on the chair in front of you and you really hate that you have to come and write this check and put it in the, you know, the, the baskets, like, just keep your money. Like, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't need it. God will provide for our needs. And what God is actually calling us to is to actually worship with joy and rejoicing. Cheerful giving and that we are thankful that God has actually given us the opportunity to give for the work of ministry. That's what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are really all about. And so God's not calling the worshiper to obligation or chore or uh, joylessness or uh, grit your teeth and bear it kind of thing or check it off the list. It's actually joyful worship that we actually are allowed to do this. My mom used to say, he's going to get his money regardless if you give it or not. Yeah. <laughs> he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He, he, you know, he doesn't need it. He yeah, doesn't, doesn't need anything. anything. And sometimes we want to turn worship into this little defined thing. You know, we want to put it in this little box. And that's not what worship is. Worship's a whole big conglomeration of what we're trying to show God. That we're, our hearts are humbled and, yeah. and we just can't fathom that this God of creation is even wanting my worship. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something built into the feasts and festivals um, uh, of Israel that there's a, there's a personal and corporate nature to this, right? So there's some things that they're to do individually, like within their own homes, personally. And then there's things that they have to come together for. And they're both worship. So this is, this is kind of the point I made in passing, is that Sunday morning from 1030 to 12 is not your only time to worship. It might be your only time for corporate worship, where you're doing it together, but it should not be your only time for worship is that we're actually called all the time to worship the Lord, personal worship. And so that might be in your morning devotions, that might be in how, how you do you know, your job and things like that, is that all things are to be done in worship. It's an all-day thing. You're constantly recognizing that God is God, and I'm not. That's exactly. And are thankful because He is God, and He's it's just, you know, seeing a sunrise or a sun, I mean, it, it's not just nature, but it's... You know, I, I can't put into words how I even feel. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we as Christians shouldn't be able to put it into words because we should say it everywhere. Yeah, that's what I, I, I can't even name the things that, right. that I see every day that makes me worship who this personal God that came awesome, to Ann mm. and chose Ann and let me confess to him that I might be. Chosen or predestined? Don't start. <laughs> I'm gonna cut the audio off right now. I was both. <laughs> I was both. <laughs> well, I, I've kept y'all two minutes late, and uh, before Miss Kathy goes off, I'll uh, <laughs> I'm gonna pray for you. <laughs>
What would you do without <laughs> Your life would be so boring. <laughs> so easy, is that what you said? Yes. Okay. <laughs> 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 God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this group of people and how they desire to know you by knowing your word. And I pray, God, help us as we create rhythms that you have established from creation that are for our good. Work and rest, God, and worship, Lord. All these things are to be done to bring honor, recognition, glory, acknowledgement to you. So, Lord, help us with these things. God, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for opening up the eyes of our hearts to see, behold, and know the glory, your glory, O God, in the face of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.